0: Is the end of lockdown in sight? We'll be discussing that today, as well as this week's stories.
1: High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers.
0: Zelda turns 35. The retro light at the end of the tunnel
1: grows brighter. Say goodbye to fries. Driving the Super Nintendo harder than ever. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, we've covered a lot of anniversaries here on This Week in Retro, but this ranks for me as one of the biggest. 35 years ago this month The Legend of Zelda was released, not for the Famicom proper as many people might think, but it was released as a launch title on the Famicom disc system in Japan. Neil, have you ever had a chance to play with an FDS? I have, and I had a chance to play with it back in the day, back in the early,
0: well, in the early 90s, so fairly late in the NES's Mm -hmm. um, life cycle. I was friends with a kid whose family regularly went um, back and forth to Asia to visit family and friends, and they had this strange system here in the UK in their house called the Famicom. Didn't know what that was at the time Uh, and it had the FDS and it sat neatly Mm. on top of the NES, uh, Famicom, not the NES (laughs) and it loaded both retail games but also hacked and modified games which I thought was so cool on a console and I remember he had a particularly rude version of River City Rampage um and it had a name that i can't possibly repeat on this show (laughs) show. but you know as a young kid it was incredibly entertaining seeing that rudeness come out of a nintendo console so (laughs) i I thought this kid had the perfect balance of triple a console titles and the ease of piracy that we enjoyed as micro owners so he had life pretty good john
1: yeah it, it really was the best of both worlds You're right yeah. and i think that was maybe one of the reasons why the famicom disk system didn't go on to be a great success <laughs> maybe piracy had something to do with it i know that in uh in stores they'd actually have copy stations set up where you could go in and, and pop your disc in and then you know put a couple coins in and get a new game written to it which is kind of a neat idea um but uh yeah, unfortunately it, it it didn't really go anywhere but uh you're 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 really lucky to have used one back when they were at least somewhat contemporary. Uh, I never had a chance to play with one myself, but when I went to Japan and visited Super Potato or Super Potato, I guess you'd say, I made a beeline for the uh, for the FDS section because I wanted a copy of uh, Zelda no densetu uh, as the game was known over there. Uh, so the Legend of Zelda, which made its way onto the NES a year and a half later in 1987 was one of the trilogy of games along with Super Mario Brothers and Metroid that represented, at least for me, a real sea change in video games. Um, Zelda, of course, having that battery backup system was amazing to me because you didn't have to write down long passwords anymore. And, of course, being a console person, the idea of writing a game to disk just was uh, uh, foreign to me. Um, But Zelda didn't really define a single genre. Um, After all, there were plenty of top-down adventure games like Ultima, take a drink, or Adventure on the Atari 2600. Uh, But the combination of the top-down adventuring plus real-time action combat and then all of the logic-based puzzle solving, I think, was something that had never been done before either on computers or consoles. I mean, Neil, can you think of any computer games at the time that approximated this genre blending that Zelda accomplished?
0: Hmm. Yeah, it really is a blend, isn't it? And we're talking mm. top-down, real-time battles, puzzle solving. About 1986, 1987.
1: Is that right? Right. Right. 86 on the disc, and then 87 on the cartridge release. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm not sure about that exact combination of things. You know, we had games like um, Dragon Warrior or Dragon Quest, I think it was called, in other regions. At that time, in 86, we had Fantasy Star and Final Fantasy in 87, mm-hmm. so about the same time. But, you know, there wasn't a shortage of deep and complex adventures to go on these, these consoles once you had those types of games coming out. Um, admittedly, I think those examples I've given had turn-based combat so it doesn't yeah. really tick all the boxes that you're talking about so um, yeah yeah. I mean Zelda was more a pick up and play kind of game in that respect it was less stat driven than the others in your decision making um, the balance I find still quite refreshing today with that original Zelda you know it has stood the test of time well um, you mentioned the batteries there have they stood the test of time I've not had to work on any are they they start it, to leave it's leak funny because
1: okay? you're You read all these things on the internet about how the batteries only last, you know, 10 to 20 years. But I still have battery-based games for the Nintendo that still work perfectly. So I think it's it's sort of a, uh, it, it's it's not unlike capacitors on your, uh, you know, on your classic computers where, you know, you're going to have a certain section of systems that are still working, but if you're at all serious about saving and maintaining your games, you're going to want to open those up, replace the batteries in them, and, uh, you know, use something like uh, one of the new devices that can actually rip the save files from your, your battery back up uh, cartridges before you replace those batteries if you want to keep all those saves from back in the day
0: clever clever yeah Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah in terms of Zelda as a game uh, great game uh, still refreshing to play today but I suspect it's a more important game to you than it is to me in terms of our gaming history because you were an NES man back in the day weren't
1: you yeah yeah Yeah. I mean Zelda was one of those games that before I had an NES I i would just sit there and i would read about it endlessly in fact i i did a lot of reading about nes games as, as the nes was taking over the united states because i didn't get one until a couple years after that happened so uh whenever i read about zelda my imagination just went into overdrive uh it, to put it in more recent terms the way i imagined zelda was a game like world of warcraft or skyrim rather than what the game actually was uh, when i finally got to play it a couple months later It never quite met the expectations my mind had created. I'm sure you've got some stories of games that was like that for you where you'd read a preview in a magazine and you'd you'd make this whole narrative in your head about what this game was and then maybe let down a little bit when the game was released. Has that happened to you before, Neil?
0: Oh, yeah, Uh, particularly if it's a game... On a system that you haven't yet bought, and and this mm-hmm. becomes part and parcel of your reason to upgrade, to sell your right. beloved system, and to upgrade. And if it lets you down, oh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it really is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't until I I played Final Fantasy that my imagination and reality came together and and what I thought was going to happen actually happened. But still, whenever I see that dramatic opening scene in The Legend of Zelda with the waterfall and the theme music swells up, I I still get goosebumps. Uh, How about you, Neil? What was your original impression of The Legend of Zelda?
0: well, not being an NES owner uh, back in the day, uh, it wasn't one of those games that you went round to your mate's house to play when you visited, you know. You would probably take a back seat to watch them if indeed they played it at all, which wasn't much fun. So <laughs> my, my <laughs> introduction to the series uh, when I could play it proper was when I borrowed a Super Nintendo. So I got, you know, in, into the later Zelda game. Um, I did come back and, and revisit it later. Um, as a player of rpgs i i nearly said proper rpgs as a player of rpgs on my (laughs) micros i wouldn't say i was stunned by the depth of the story or you know gritty realism or any any of that but it was accessible it was very accessible particularly as someone who wasn't a regular console player at the time it was cute Mm. Uh, i'm not really talking the game up very well i know john um (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know what i'm trying to say is that what it did it did well it didn't do the type of rpg that i was into but i could appreciate it as an accessible enjoyable game yeah
1: let's just get this out of the way right now zelda is not a role-playing game it's an Sorry, action-adventure no. <laughs> game with puzzle elements huh. anyway our question of the week everyone i we want to get your thoughts on this now You might be thinking that hot on the heels of all of Nintendo's marketing surrounding Mario's 35th anniversary, there'd be a big push from them to sell fans on a plethora of remakes or at least another Game & Watch reincarnation. That's right, Neil, if you didn't know, Zelda was actually given the Game & Watch treatment too back in the day. But it looks like Nintendo is letting this anniversary pass quietly by, at least for the moment. Uh, the latest Zelda news is that uh, Nintendo is re—they're uh, remaking the Wii game Skyward Sword, but that hardly captures the essence of the original 2D game and all of that stuff. So, I was honestly hoping for a bigger celebration. Um, Neil, when, when, and if Nintendo does decide to uh, go forward with their plans to celebrate uh, this anniversary, what would you like to see in terms of Zelda swag?
0: Oh, swag. it's not like Nintendo to pass up an opportunity to uh, sell some swag on an anniversary. you right. <laughs> um, and, and you mentioned that it's not like the original 2D game. I must say, I do admire the way Nintendo switch and change the art style on the different Zelda games. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because it's a, it's a very well protected and cherished franchise of theirs. They don't want to screw it up. But to go from cell shaded to 2D to, you know, to 3D across all the different systems, um, the ways that, the, that they've presented the Zelda series. I do really admire that, so I think that's a great thing and I hope they continue to do that. Um, we haven't had it in VR yet, have we? Have we had Zelda in VR? No Nintendo in VR at all. No, so maybe maybe that's on the cards next. But um, yeah. in terms of swag, uh, I recently lost my cheese knife, John, so I'd like to see oh. uh, a, a Zelda-themed <laughs> cheese knife for my cheese board. I can cut my cheeses into little Triforces,
1: consume their power, wash them down with some ale, that would do me. How about you, John? Well, that's a hard one to top, Neil. I love it. Um, <laughs> I could, pr- I could probably use some some Triforce cufflinks. Uh, you know, nothing says swanky like nice. sporting those to a black tie event. I'd love to, to put some of those on. Um, in the gaming realm, I really, speaking of art styles, I really like what Nintendo did with the Switch remake of the Game Boy Zelda game, Link's Awakening. Uh, they kept it 2D. They kept the top-down viewpoint. But they updated all the graphics as these gorgeous 3D models. When you play it's like looking down into a living diorama. It's, it's nice. really, really super cool. So, anyway, a happy 35th birthday to Zelda, Link and of course the old dude in the cave. The National Museum of Computing in the UK
0: has just finished conducting an online event called the Microlympics. It involved an online emulator and a different game each day of the week with high scores winning goodies from the museum shop. The event celebrated the 40th year of the BBC Microcomputer, which officially turns 40 in December of this year. So it's not quite there yet. And games game played across the week were Chucky Egg, Revs, Citadel, Repton, and Elite. Are you familiar with all of those, John?
1: I've not heard of Citadel and Repton. Those, oh, okay. are, those are the yeah yeah well out of out of those which one is your favorite
0: repton is like a boulder dash clone I highly recommend that that's really enjoyable uh citadel is um it's a platform a little puzzle solving platformer game out of all of those um uh, the one that i played the most was chucky egg really great little platformer um it plays well across all, all platforms on the bbc it's a really good version i played it a lot on the amstrad i'd probably go for that one and Revs and Elite are much more in depth. Revs is uh, the precursor to Formula One Grand Prix. You may have played that on the Amiga or oh, PC. Yeah. Uh, Jeff mm-hmm. Crammond programmed that. And if you've ever played F1GP and you go back and play Revs, you can really feel the engine, you know, how it's evolved. Mm. It feels very similar. And Elite, you don't need me to talk about Elite. Huge game. Everyone knows Elite. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a big choice of games. And actually, if you're turning that into a competition, wow, who can get the highest score on Elite? That's pretty hardcore in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's all very exciting, and museum director uh, Jackie Garrard was thrilled with the response to the event, apparently, which saw gamers of all ages and genders participating. But the icing on the retro cake, the glacé cherry, if you will, was the announcement that the museum will be reopening on the 28th of May of this year, or at least that's their ambition. Now, John, uh, I don't know how things work over in the US at the moment, but over here, we're still in lockdown thanks to this pandemic. So any news of a future where we can meet up and we can go to events and we can feel some, some, some kind of normality once again, it really is welcome. You know, we're really, really pining for it right now. Um, is there an expo, John, or an event or even just a place that you're missing? Uh, I don't know how much you're locked down compared to us, but is there anything that you're missing as a, as a result of the current pandemic restrictions?
1: well compared to in the uk here in west virginia we're free and easy uh, life pretty much goes on as normal here but uh, everything all the big events of course have been canceled uh, the, especially the retro events the past two years uh, I've gone to Amiga Ireland I've been lucky enough to have people uh, you know support me financially to, to go there and uh, I'll say that even though I plan to sit this year out anyway I, boy I, I miss seeing all of my um, amigos buddies from from all over the world that mm-hmm. it was such a great event you should really you should really go if you can in the future Neil Amiga Ireland was was, was fantastic Um Aaron and I were planning on going to hit the uh, we were planning to hit the uh, retro circuit here in the States a lot more in 2020. But because of the pandemic, we missed out on uh, some of the festivals we were planning on going wanting to go to, like the uh, Vintage Computer Festival Southeast that's down in Atlanta. Um, And uh, Coco Fest, the Tandy Color Computer Expo in Chicago, were just a couple that we were going to go to, but we weren't able to. Um, You know, Neil, I'm actually planning my own computer festival, not this summer, but next. Boat Fest 2022, Neil. Get ready. It's going to be a celebration of all things Amiga and Classic Computing and take place right here in Hurricane, West Virginia. Neil, what do you say? Think you might be able to make it in? Can Can you promise the weather will be good? (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's gonna it's 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 gonna be in the summer, so it's gonna be it's gonna be the high season.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I think it means nothing anymore over there after you shoveling snow to get out your door recently. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> but, true. Yeah, if I can make it, I would love to make it over there and see that. That sounds fantastic, John.
1: Awesome. I, I will keep you updated with the details.
0: So, um, I I can't wait to get back to to retro expos personally and see like you see my friends see the cave dwellers. I've really missed it over this last year. But is the 28th of May too ambitious for the National Museum of Computing to reopen? That's the the big question. Um, I guess we'll have to wait wait and see. Our current roadmap in the UK is that schools will be reopened from the 8th of March, 12th of April, we'll see the reopening of non-essential retail and all restrictions on all sectors are set to be lifted on the 21st of June. So even in a best case scenario, the museum date is before all restrictions are lifted. So they must be thinking about a phased reopening maybe very small groups or individuals being allowed access I don't know how they're planning on doing this but um we also had our budget announced yesterday or the day before yesterday here in the UK for the for the next year in and they mentioned that furlough which is the scheme to pay workers 80 percent of their wage while businesses are closed that's been extended through to I think September Mm. and that suggests perhaps that it's expected that some of us won't get back to normal until several months after that roadmap date so it's all still quite uncertain and of course anything can change anything can happen at this point this is really best case scenario so personally i think it will be a stretch to hit may for that reopening date but my god i'm willing it to happen john and even if it doesn't quite happen it's good that the plans are being put into place you know the gears are in motion to allow us to visit museums again and uh, the dim light at the end of the tunnel is certainly a little brighter thanks to their announcement i think john
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and people will be able to come visit you in the cave, too, right?
0: Fingers crossed. Um, I'm going to provisionally plan from September onwards to have our mm-hmm. first open day. Uh, but, you know, th- those guys have a museum, though, that's all, <laughs> all ready to go. Uh, I'm, lo- I'm looking at an unfinished wall at the other end of the room here. You know, you've seen me building this place. It's far from finished um uh, but you know it it's good actually to have that september deadline that puts the pressure on me to get it all finished and ready so i'll do my very best to get all the wonky workbenches fixed and have everything ready for for september and hopefully yes the cave can open for business later in the year but um yeah enough about me the, the national museum of computing is like many museums fighting to survive through this pandemic and could use your support so That could be as simple as just following them on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook and enjoying the pictures that they share of their fantastic old machines and and their lovely buildings. Uh, The Museum of Computing sits off the side of the famous Bletchley Park. It's a wonderful location. So if you need to do a good deed for today, go and give them a follow and show them your support. That's my suggestion.
1: Neil, I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for the next cool upgrade for my retro computers. I want to tell you about something I found over at RetroRewind.ca. It's a thing called the Plipbox, and to me it seems like the easiest and cheapest way to get your Amiga online. What it is, is it's an Ethernet jack that plugs into the parallel port of your Amiga 500, 600, 1200, well, all the Amigas except for the 1000. Sorry A1000 owners, you're out of luck again. Uh, Anyway, you plug this thing in, connect it to a mini USB power supply to juice it up, and away you go surfing the internet like it's 1995 all over again. Now, Neil, when you try and connect a classic computer to the internet for the first time, do you have a go-to website to see how it renders?
0: I usually try the BBC News website, and then I'll try YouTube just to see how badly it fails at trying to show us the homepage on (laughs) on YouTube. (laughs) Uh, Then I'll usually hit community websites for the system because if you do that, you normally find that they work nicely. They're designed to work with that particular system. But more, you know, usually once I'm online with something like the Plipbox, I'll hit FTP servers. That's where the magic is. That's where you can get all the useful files nice and easily, patches, games that you want for your retro system once you're online. Or even uh, connecting up to your local FTP server that you've set up to ease um, file transfer. I do that an awful lot, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. The flip Box is currently on sale for 45 bucks, but This Week in Retro listeners can get 10% off uh, or of that or any purchase there by using the promo code TWIRROCKS at checkout. That's T-W-I-R ROCKS, all one word. Uh, be sure and check out all the cool hardware they have in stock, uh, and it, it's all assembled at the Retro Rewind headquarters in the great white north of Canada. A big thank you to Retro Rewind for sponsoring this week's episode. Thank you, Retro Rewind. Neil, almost every computer enthusiast of a certain age remembers the trip to the store to pick up that latest piece of kit, or if you were anything like me, just slowly making my way down aisle after aisle gawking at things I could never afford. Uh, where was your local electronic shop of choice, Neil?
0: Uh, if we're talking general electronics, a bit of everything, it was Dixon's on the high street. So in there you had your hi-fi corner, computers, toasters and kettles, all neatly compartmentalized around the store. And my favorite aisle was, of course, the one with the CRT monitors on, you know, to computers, making your arm hair stand up from their static and the, the the lovely smell of new electronics burning off in those CRTs. Heaven, John, Absolutely heaven.
1: I never thought about that in, in, until you just mentioned it, but I do have very specific memories of walking down that aisle and feeling, like you said, the your arm <laughs> hair stand up from the static. That's an amazing memory. Um, my biggest memories come from a store called circuit city this was uh in a building adjacent to our local mall in huntington um unlike best buy you know one of these huge mega electronics retailers it was on the smaller side but it was jam-packed to the gills with every make and model of computer console car stereo unit or television you could think of Uh, To show off the contrast on the television screens they always kept it kind of dark in there and the atmosphere wasn't entirely dissimilar to an 80s style arcade with all the sounds of the video games and the TVs and the stereos all going at once. Um, Circuit City sadly went out of business in uh, 2009. But the name was purchased and it now exists as a kind of horrible, generic online electronics store. Um, Our local Circuit City, however, lived on as a Chinese buffet for for many years, Uh, but it shuttered as a result of the pandemic, unfortunately. Now, it seems that another titan of the brick-and-mortar electronics business is closing its doors. Fry's Electronics, a 36-year veteran of the business on the west coast of the United States, just announced the closing of its remaining locations. Now, being an East Coast person, I've never been to Fry's before, but in the early 2000s and in the pre-Amazon days, I always heard about what kinds of amazing deals you could find there, and the stores were famous for their themed entrances. They almost looked like walking into any one of the Las Vegas casinos downtown uh the san jose store facade was built like mayan ruins uh the las vegas one was a giant slot machine and my personal favorite the store in burbank california featured a life-size flying saucer that had crash landed into the side of the building it was really really awesome looking uh i hope that these facades will be preserved even though fries are no longer with us so what do you think neil um I don't think either of us thinks a lot of the big box store shopping experience is that great anymore, but as a computer shopper in 2021, what could lure you back into the brick and mortar?
0: Hmm, difficult question. And uh, you say shops like Fry's and Circuit City. To me, these are just names that I know from American movies or TV. We we didn't have them over here. (laughs) I'm familiar with the names. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I didn't know about the facades. That's really interesting about crashed UFOs and things. I love that, I love that. Um, my final memories of these types of stores, and I say final because it's not like they've all closed down now. We do still have big electrical stores, but I haven't been to one proper for the best part of a decade, I think. Or if I did, it was to get in and out for one specific thing. And my memories of them are the knowledgeable staff kind of vanished. They went out. Mm-hmm. Upselling mm-hmm. of extended warranties came in. I don't know if you had all of that over there, oh, but every I've time it's, you it's bought something, oh, I hate it, hate it. Mm-hmm. Um so that meant there was really no advantage to go into a store over going on Amazon Prime. You know, the exception being stores like Richer Sounds for hi-fis and such, where you do still have some knowledgeable staff. But I'm really talking about the, the monstrously large stores on retail estates. So over here we have Comet and PC World and places like that. And um, long before that, you know, a couple of decades back, I think a lot of the magic was lost in the world of computers, because that's the aisle that I loved browsing when everything became a lot more homogenized, you know, looking at a row of 10 IBM PC compatibles, it doesn't have the same excitement now as seeing a row of incompatible 8 and 16-bit micros all fighting out to become the future of computing. That's how exciting it was. You know, it really was a, a sight to behold. You could, as a kid, you could say, well, that system is, who's gonna buy that? Who's gonna buy that ZX Spectrum in this year, but it's still on there, still on sale, fighting its best to be bought up against sega mega drives and super nintendos and things like that um, it really was a mm-hmm. wonderful sight. so i do remember actually the last time i went in to a store like that it was it was because i needed a network cable in a pinch so I, I just nipped in to buy it and i remember the popular stand this must have been probably a couple of years ago the popular stand where all the kids were huddled around it wasn't computers or consoles it was a display made up of a gaming chair headsets microphones and stream decks and the dream of becoming a gaming streamer on twitch was being sold uh, you know that's where it was all at john that was the big thing um i feel like i sound a bit like an old man now to be to be i'm, I'm not really talking it down i i just want to highlight you know that's where i was crooning over a, uh crooning over a zx spectrum or an amstrad cpc and the graphics on the screen it's all homogenized it's all normalized a gaming pc as a gaming pc Uh, according to how much money you can throw at the graphics card and the excitement for them was the webcams and the streaming and the you know the 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 stream deck and all of that so um am i being an old man john (laughs) i don't know (laughs) well
1: yeah kind of neil i mean i'm sorry but but (laughs) yeah i actually i you know I think it's a good idea from a business perspective. You know, whenever sure. whenever you're in retail, you're trying to sell you're trying to sell happiness. And in selling the dream of being a professional streamer, Is what tons and tons of kids want to do these days it's no different than seeing a cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan next to the basketball display in a sporting goods store you know you 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 want to you know hype up you know this this future that may or may not come to pass but you know you're selling this promise that you know if you buy this stuff then you can be awesome and uh, as an educator I think that there are actually some some uh, some positive things about becoming a better streamer that can impact you in in real life. Uh, you know, there's a uh, you learn to be better at public speaking, you learn to be better at video production, and of course, the ultimate positive character trait: same, shameless self promotion. Neil, <laughs> well, maybe not all of that is good, but uh, but I agree with the rest of your criticisms of the modern big box electronic store industry. I think that Apple is really the only store that does in person retail right, and a big part of that is because they operate on such high margins you know they can they can afford to you know educate their staff and only hire the best people and things like that you know i I've, I've i really i've liked apple stores so much that i've worked at their stores on both sides of the atlantic as we've talked about before it's not enough to just offer a wide variety of products you've got to have the entire experience and you have to have your staff your stores with employees that are passionate and knowledgeable about what they're doing At Apple, they devote a huge part of their floor plan to open areas for classes and workshops that are all provided for free to anyone, whether you've bought a computer there or not. Now, I say all that because I'm thinking back to when the last time I worked there, which was in 2009. And just now saying this, I realize it's been over a decade. So it's possible that all (laughs) of that has changed now and they're just shucking iPhones. So maybe, you know, maybe the dream is over. But regardless, giving those kinds of opportunities to customers to learn about the thing they've bought or about to buy gives them another reason to spend time at the restore and to come back. But of course, all this stuff costs money. And with the razor thin margins that most tech retailers have, I know it's not feasible.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you get what you pay for, don't you? And it's those margins right. that make all the difference. And, and it is funny, it's, it's the few stores that value product knowledge in their staff and value their staff, like Apple, like Richer Sounds. And I know there's probably people out there listening, screaming at us for using apple as an example because there will be individual cases where this doesn't stand up to scrutiny but on the whole on the whole they do treat their staff um, like that and train them as you've described from the inside um they stand out for for just doing that and for just doing what in previous decades was the norm and what was expected of an employee in any store to be able to walk in and to be able to get knowledgeable advice from the employees there but now that makes you stand out sounding like an old man again but that makes you stand out now as a store
1: Right, right. Yeah. Now, I wonder how many of our listeners still prefer to buy their computers and other technology in person mm-hmm. in the shops. Um, if you do, let us know on the subreddit or in the YouTube comments of this video. <laughs> A quick story
0: now to end on John before our Community Question of the Week. And this story was submitted to the This Week in Retro subreddit by Pajaco6502, a regular contributor. Thank you very much. And we're talking Super Nintendo and the SA1 chip. Now, if you're not familiar with the SA1 or Super Accelerator 1, it's a chip that was used in about 34 Super Nintendo games back in the day, games like Super Mario RPG, um, Kirby's Dream Land 3, and who can forget Power Rangers Zio Battle Racers. Oh, a classic, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> um, these games, they're all from about 1995 through to 97. So moving into the later years of the console with some extra power using this SA1 chip, that was really needed to keep things interesting while playing second fiddle to the next generation of consoles which were now available. Why am I telling you all this? Well, it's because a Brazilian ROM hacker by the name of Vitor Villela has been creating patches for games which didn't use the SA1 chip originally, so that they might be improved. So far, he's patched up Contra 3, Gradius 3, Super Mario World and Super R-Type. The beauty of doing this is that the SA1 chip well, it doesn't take over from the Super Nintendo's CPU. It runs in parallel. It's a coprocessor. And both CPUs can send each other interrupts uh, and run alongside each other. So the result is that the original game can run normally. The timing remains the same. That still can be controlled by the original CPU exactly as it should be. But um, these games get accelerated by the SA1 chip and they don't become unplayably fast. Um, as mm-hmm. a result of this, uh, the ROM hack is just offloading certain functions onto the SA1.
1: Now, this isn't the first time that we've talked about Mr. Valela on the show. Uh, we mentioned this, his other project, back on episode 23, where he's been busy overclocking the other big chip, the Super FX chip, as well. Uh, this guy must know the Super Nintendo inside and out. So tell me, Neil, uh, how much faster is this thing over the original system CPU?
0: Yeah, completely forgot that that was the same guy, wasn't it? Yeah, a really mm-hmm. knowledgeable guy. Clearly, um, we're talking about ten megahertz on the SA1, around about there, compared to about three and a half megahertz on the it was a five A 22 CPU on the Super Nintendo. So, it is a significant boost, um, and we're talking about a coprocessor so that both can be used together. So that you know, you pair them up and you've got quite a lot of power compared to the original system. Now, nobody wants to be soldering SA1 chips onto old cartridges, of course. Uh, This all becomes easily accessible in a couple of ways. You can do it through emulators, so it just gives you a better experience than than the original if you're running um, the emulator, And, and a better experience than simply increasing the emulation speed, you know, because of that timing aspect. It keeps everything nice and tight and keeps it playable. I say everyone because there are videos on YouTube where people have gone ahead and soldered up their own cartridge. So they'll take a, go, a, a donor cartridge like um, I know, PGA Tour, I think, is an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you'll notice on eBay, the, these games that have the SA1 chip in do go for significantly more money than other games, even if it's a terrible game. Uh, mm. and, and so people will buy these games, rip out the original game ROM, and um, implant their own flashed ROM with the SA1 modification on that. Or you can use something now like the sd 2 SNES cartridge, which has SA1 capabilities built in. So you can run those games from an SD card, nice easy way to do it, and plug that into an original uh, Super Nintendo console. I think that's the way I'd like to do it. Um, but yeah, it's great. He's made a few of these. He's, he's been around doing this work for some time. The big benefit, of course, is slowdown is eliminated in certain games. Um, some of them have well-known slowdown spots, Gradius 3, for example is now silky smooth. Uh, it's probably smoother than the original Arcade, which also had slowdown. down. It is wonderful to see uh, when the action gets intense. It just plays, it's, just, it's like butter, John. It's lovely. Mm. There's lots of videos on YouTube you can watch of this. And now his latest release is Race Driving. So he's used the SA1, and he says he's seeing a 1,000% performance increase thanks to this work. Uh, in terms of frame rate, that means we're seeing, to my eye, it looks like about 30, if not more, frames per second on a Super Nintendo from this fully shaded Polygon 3D Racer compared to about three frames per second on the stock machine. <laughs> it's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah.
1: Wow. That sounds really impressive. Now, what about, you know, Star Fox? I'm sure that's a game that many people would love to see sped up.
0: Yeah, yeah. I uh, mean, you mentioned his work on the Super FX chip earlier. Mm-hmm. He does mention Star Fox in the description text of the demonstration video, which you can watch on YouTube. And he says, he would like to convert that in in future. So clearly he thinks it's possible. That did have the Super FX chip in it to help it along, but there's there's plenty of slowdown in Star Fox, especially over here on our fifty hertz version. So yes, I'd I'd absolutely like to see that one get the extra push. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that if you if you overclock the or if you replace the SA one chip and then you put it in you overclock the super FX, then it's just it's a super, super super Nintendo <laughs> at that point. <laughs> super nintendo
0: squared yeah right Um, and of course the really nice thing about this is that it's period authentic insofar as the sa1 was around when the console was still being sold and these hacks could have been released and improved versions of the games could have been released during its lifetime if if developers had been inclined to do that so That's kind of nice, I like that it's kind of authentic, if not Mm -hmm. entirely. So go and check out the comparison videos on YouTube where you'll see the original and the enhanced games, and you can find all the links to that in the show notes.
1: Last week's community question of the week was, what is the most aesthetically pleasing computer design? Neil, what did our Reddit community say?
0: Well, the most popular answer with five upvotes was from KezMonkey. And they say, one system immediately springs to mind, and it's the one I spent the mid-80s with, the Amstrad CPC-464. Those colored keys really made the system stand out. I mean, I, I like the colors on the CPC-464. Aesthetically, it's very 80s. I'll get, uh, mm-hmm. That's all I can say about it, really. I love it because it was my first system. Um, it's very 80s, and I, I approve this choice, Monkey. <laughs>
1: I, I agree. I I love the colored keys. I have a 464 as well. It's a very long and thin system. It, it definitely looks different than most every other 8-bit micro. But uh having having the built-in tape drive is, is 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 also a big plus. Good work on that one. Um Mobiest 68W says, "Is this a serious question?" Of course it's the Amiga 3000. Every time I walk by mine, I sing the refrain from the contemporary print song Sexy MF. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a strong choice. You can't really argue with that, can you? Of all the Amiga, it's it's, it's
1: definitely the most beautiful big box Amiga for sure.
0: Do you think it's a toss-up between the 1000 and the 3000? For me, it's a hard one, but it's definitely Uh,
1: the 1000 is in second place. But I love that the 3000 has such a unique shape. It's different than any other any other kind of you know pizza box style computer. I'll go with the 3000.
0: Right, uh pajaco 6502 says this is a tough question to answer but for me the porsche designed commodore pet the retro futuristic look of this machine is awesome i would love to have the space and the bank balance to own one i'm actually <laughs> looking at one across the room now uh it's often referred to as the porsche design commodore pet but i need to look into this i think that's a wrong uh bit of history i don't think it was porsche that designed it um mm. need to look into that pajaco uh, and it will certainly feature on my channel soon in its own episode, so I can really get to the bottom about who designed this thing. But I know exactly the one you mean because everyone calls it the Porsche designed Commodore pet, yeah,
1: yeah, I you know the one that you have, of course, is gorgeous. A lot of those early pets are just great, but I prefer the original Commodore pet two thousand one uh, to me it, it's it's the perfect combination of like you know 70s retro futuristic tech i love the 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 keyboard although it's you know it looks to be completely unusable but it just looks so (laughs) cool it also has a built-in tape deck so i'm going to go with the 2001 but any of the commodore pets very beautiful machines and like you said very expensive
0: yeah iconic machines they really are so this week's community question of the week is is zelda a role-playing game oh controversial (laughs) why or why not post your answer in the this week in retro subreddit and upvote your favorite responses no using secondary accounts to upvote your own responses please and thank you and we'll read the top five most upvoted responses in the show next week this week in retro was presented by neil from rmc and john shawler It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube
1: channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers.
0: If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.